Well, t- today we get to uh, we get a look at Romans chapter seven. Um, when you think of Romans chapter seven, what comes to mind? The law. The law. Yeah. And and really, that's what Romans chapter seven is all about. It is all about the law. And you know, you think about often people think about Romans seven. They think of the last half of Romans seven, which is Paul's struggle where he says, I don't do what I want to do, and I'm not doing what I want to do, and so forth. And um, and that's true, that's a big part of it, but really that's not the main point of it. It's the illustration that Paul's going to use, but the main point really is addressing the believer's relationship with the law. That's what he's wanting to uh, to, to get to. Um, if you think about it, there's some some verses that leading up to... Uh, to to the to chapter seven in in, um, in the book of Romans that Paul has been mentioning the law, so in Romans chapter two, and we didn't look at it in great detail, but in Romans chapter two, he's talking about how the unbeliever didn't have the law, or the Gentile didn't have the law, but the Jews did have a law, and yet both are in the same boat. Both of them are in need of salvation. And so there wasn't an advantage in terms of salvation for the Jew. Now, there was an advantage to having the law because you got to have access to God that way and hear from God. But there wasn't an advantage in the sense that keeping the law was going to lead to salvation. And he went and explained that more in chapter 3 when, uh, you know, in verse 21, he says, But now the righteousness of God is revealed by faith apart from the law. So in chapter 3 and, and, and then again in chapter 4, he's explaining that salvation is separate from the law. That the law, in keeping it, has nothing to do with salvation. And so you kind of imagine a reader, particularly somebody who really loves the law, and is just really holding on to law, and he's reading this, and you imagine, you know, with each chapter, he's getting a little bit more offended, a little bit more taken aback, thinking, whoa, Paul, you're going too far. And so when he gets to chapter 4, in verses 13 to 16, he's talking about Abraham, who didn't have the law. And yet he was saved. He was made righteous by faith. And and so he's going a little bit further. And then he gets to chapter 5 and 13 and 14. And that's what we looked at and we saw that you know before Moses, from Adam to Moses, there was no law and yet death still reigned because sin was in the world. Meaning that the law wasn't crucial. The, the law wasn't the vital aspect and yet people were still saved and yet some people weren't saved. Well, if that's the case, then suddenly the law is no longer the preeminent tool that God's using. And so now they're getting really asking questions. And then in chapter 5, verse 20 and 21, that's where he says that the law was added so that sin would increase. So he's actually saying here that, that the law actually causes more sin. Well, to somebody who loves the law, that, that becomes even more offensive. But I think the one where he kind of goes over the top almost where the if if you were were offended by the first five statements in Romans then Romans 6:14 is the one that will really get your back up it says for sin shall not be your master over you for you're not under law but you're under grace i remember one time when i was i was teaching and uh, and I, I mentioned this verse. I, I said, we're not under law, we're, we're under grace. And I, I was doing that in reference to another passage in Galatians that was talking about the law. And I remember this guy, he got all upset and he says, that's not what that verse says. We're, we're still under law. And he was very adamant about this. And I said, well, let's turn to, Gal- to Romans 6.14. And we read it. And he was just, he was still steaming. He was so fuming because he was so worried that I was in some way taking away the law and that I was I was putting down the law. 
And that wasn't what I was doing. But I was trying to say, though, however, as believers, we're free from the law. And and the reason that we need to be free from it is because if not, sin will master us. Sin will continue to control us. But when I look at, at Christianity today, when I look at the church, what I end up seeing is we come to Jesus and we're justified by faith apart from the law. We understand that thanks to the Reformation. Martin Luther made that one clear to us, that justification and salvation is apart from the law. But now that you're saved, what do we add? We add the law. It's, it's sort of like this idea that says, come to Jesus just as you are. Just as you are. It doesn't matter where you are, you know what you're going through, what you're experiencing. Just come to Jesus as you are. And we do that. But now that you come to Jesus, guess what? You can't stay just the way you are. That's not okay anymore. That's not acceptable anymore. So here are the rules. Here are the things you need to do and the things you need to avoid doing in order for God to be happy with you, in order for you to maintain your salvation, to prove your salvation, to earn your salvation. We don't put in those words, but that's essentially what we're trying to do. And we're holding on to the law because the law just feels so comfortable to us. But the reality is what Paul's saying is we're not under law. That we're under grace now. And that grace and law are two things that don't mix. The two things that you can't combine. That when you try to combine law and grace, you're, you're ruining both of them, in essence. In many ways, the law is to serve as a holy terror. Think about it. The, when you break the law, what are the consequences? The soul that sinneth must die, right? That's, that's what the law is demanding. It's demanding perfection or death. That's a holy terror. Which is why there had to be a sacrifice. That's why there had to be Jesus. But grace says, God does it. And He loves you unconditionally. When you blend the two together, you take away the holy terror of the law. But you also weaken the power of grace. And so you think of it this way. When you add law and grace, you're poisoning each other. If I add a little bit of arsenic to water, would you want to drink that? It's just a little arsenic. It's not a lot. Yes? And I'm not sure where that's from, but it says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. How do you explain it? Sure. That's a great question. That's a great question. In It's in John chapter 13, I think it is, where he's saying that. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And the commandment essentially is to trust him. I mean, that's, that's really what it comes down to. And it's not he's talking about the, the Mosaic Law. See, the Mosaic Law was simply about what you do to perform. Whereas what Jesus was saying there was, trust me, depend upon me. Because that's always what it's been about. It's always been about faith. Um, you think about in, in John chapter 6, in uh, verse 28 and 29, uh, the followers come up to Jesus and say, Jesus, what are the things, what are the works of God that we must do? So what's my part, essentially, they're asking him. A great question, a valid question. And the answer he gives in verse 29 is, the, work, the will of God or the works of God is this, that you believe in the one whom he has sent. So obedience is very important. Don't I mean, we talked about that in chapter 6 and why it's important to obey. But obedience ultimately comes down to dependence upon Jesus, trusting in Jesus. And if we love Him, if we're, if we're going, we will trust Him. Absolutely. And it's not a, 
um, it's not a proof, it's more of a consequence. If you love me, the consequence is you will obey me. You'll be trusting in me. The same verse saying the two greatest commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart. I mean, isn't that what he's saying to us? And and you'll see that that starts making an appearance when we get into chapter 8. So as we go, I think we're going to start making more sense about this. But but that's, I mean, it's a big question, right? And it's, it's hard to understand. And so chapter 7 really is all about the believer's relationship to the law, to the Mosaic law. Yeah. Can I ask a technical question? Yeah. What, is there a difference between capital L law and small L law and some? <laughs> yeah, and and the reality is, uh, anytime you see a capital in in our English translation, that's the discretion of the translators, because in the Greek there wasn't capitals; they're all they're all capitals. That's how it worked there. And so, what we do, for example, our translators they'll add a capital S to spirit, and that's to distinguish between our spirit or God's spirit. So that gives us some insight. And when they're trying to put a capital on the L, they're trying to denote the, the, the Mosaic law. And other times, for example, there's law of sin in chapter 7 or the law of my mind. And that's not so much the Mosaic law as much as it is a principle. And so that would be a lowercase L. And then when they're just not sure, then they just put a lowercase L and cross their fingers and hope you figure it out. So it, it kind of, it's, it's the discretion of the translator, but they're trying to help us understand which law are we talking about. So, isn't that the point that the Israelites missed completely? Is that love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, as they just mentioned, and love your neighbor as yourself? I mean, the love part makes it possible to do all that God mm-hmm. wants you to do without having to look at all the individual ten points or sixteen or thirty points, whatever you mm-hmm. want to look at, and and complete what God wants you to do mm-hmm. to live the Christian life. You, yeah, you know, and and I think as we go, we'll start to understand that more. Yeah. So, so that's our goal today. Our goal, this, at least this morning, is to tackle this, this very you know, controversial for some passage, but really understand the law and the role that the law plays in the life of the Christian. So why don't we open up with a word of prayer, because we're not going to understand it apart from Him. All right? Heavenly Father, we, we're excited this morning that we get to continue on our, our journey through this book of Romans. and. And this morning we're going to talk about a passage that has confused many. It's, it's led to all kinds of debates and so forth. And yet, Father, it's so crucial. It's so important that we have an understanding of what the law means and what role the law plays in our lives this morning or today as believers. And so, Father, we trust you. We're looking forward to what you're going to do. And more than just having information and knowledge, Father, may we have an experience with your son, Jesus. May that be what's communicated to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Alright, so, chapter 7, verse 1. And look at the first word, or. Now, when you, when you read a book and, and you start a chapter, a chapter generally denotes that it's a, a, a new thought, a new concept, and so forth, and and, and is that the case here that Paul's doing? Chapter 7, verse 1? No. The chapter and verse divisions are really just man adding so that we can break up and structure the, the, the Bible. But the reality is, Paul's not beginning anything new. He's just continuing. I mean, how many chapters to begin with the word or? 
just this one, right? No, but I mean, in terms of our, our regular books that we read, you never see that. And it doesn't begin with or. But what he's doing is verse 1 of chapter 7, again, it goes back to Romans 6.14, what he was saying. And verse 15 as well. Should we continue in sin that we're not under law but under grace? Well, the first answer was no, because there's still consequences, earthly consequences to our sin. Remember, life's about choices, and choices still have consequences. So make good choices. If you choose to trust in the Spirit, you reap His life. You get to experience His peace, His joy. You trust in your flesh, then you'll reap the consequences of that flesh, which is death, misery, despair, frustration, anxiety, bitterness, weakness, tiredness, and so forth. So that was the first answer. But he's going to go a little bit further now, and he's going to now address specifically... Those who are really, you know, holding on to the law. People who might have been offended by the statements he's made about the law. Okay, or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, those who really want the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. Which is interesting. It doesn't say till death do his part. It says as long as the person lives, the law has jurisdiction over someone. What does the word jurisdiction mean? Sorry? A legal right? Okay. What are some other words? Break out your thesaurus. What would other words would you use for jurisdiction? Authority. 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 Yeah. Any other ones? A hold. Yeah. Dominion. Obligation. Obligation. Okay. I always think of the Dukes of Hazards. Dukes of Hazard. Remember the TV show Dukes of Hazard? You know, you'd have Bo and Luke Duke in the General Lee trying to escape Roscoe Pico train. And their goal was always to get over the county line. Because the moment they crossed the county line, then what could Roscoe Pico Train do to them? Nothing. Nothing, right? He and Boss Hogg. Remember Boss Hogg? They couldn't do anything. They couldn't touch them because they're now out of the jurisdiction of Roscoe Pico Train. And so that's sort of that idea that the law has jurisdiction, has authority, dominion, power, control. But it's... Not the county line here, but only as long as that person lives. So as long as the moment that person no longer lives, what happens to their jurisdiction? It's gone. Think of it this way. Suppose right now, uh, along King Street here, one of the banks gets robbed. And this bank robber, he walks out of the bank. He's got you know the paper bag full of money, the ski mask and everything. And, and he walks to the bank, but he's got the worst timing. Because as he's walking out, a police officer rolls up. Now, police officers, I don't know if you know this or not, but they're trained that when a guy walks out of a bank with a ski mask, a gun, and a paper bag, that's suspicious behavior, and they should follow him. Right? So they start following this guy. And now they're in a high-speed chase along King Street. And it ends where the bank robber crashes into a traffic light, and he dies instantly in his car. Well, the police officer gets out, walks up, sure enough, sees the bank note, sees the money spread across the, the seat, sees the gun, the ski mask. In the meantime, he's heard a report that a bank's been robbed. So he's got him, dead to right, so to speak. Does he arrest him at this point? Put him on trial? Convict him? Put him in jail? Why not? He's guilty. He did the crime. They have all the evidence. They also have videotape evidence from the bank. So why don't they do this? Because he's dead, Right? The moment he died, the law can't touch him anymore. He's out of the jurisdiction. That's the idea that Paul's talking about here. That the, the moment that this person no longer lives, the law's jurisdiction ends. 
Now, the illustration that Paul's going to use, though, is something far more personal. He's not going to use the one I used of, you know, the general authority and so forth. He's going to use one that's far more intimate, far more personal. He's going to use a marriage relationship. And I wonder if he used this relationship because that the law was far more intimate than just, you know, the, the authority and the police and so forth. So, verses 2 and 3 really become now Paul's illustration and then he's going to apply it in verse 4. So, chapter verse 2 and 3 are not his sermon on marriage. Some have used this. That's not what he's trying to do. He's just trying to lay out an illustration here. He's going to apply it in verse 4. Because remember, the issue he's talking about is what relationship does the law have to the believer? So verse 2, he lays it out. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he's living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. Pretty pretty simple stuff, right? Husband and wife get married. How long are they married for? Till death, right? But if he dies, what happens? She's free to remarry someone else, right? So then, if while her husband is living and she's joined to another man, she should be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she's joined to another man. So, husband and wife are married. He's still alive. She joins herself with another man. That's adultery. But if he dies and she joins herself, that's okay. Pretty simple, straightforward things, right? Well, he's going to apply it now in verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who is raised from the dead, in order that we bear fruit for God. So here's the application of it. You and I, we are married to the law, and what God did is He came in and He He crucified us. We died in order that we could be joined to Jesus. And now that we're joined with Jesus, we can begin to bear fruit for God. Meaning, are we connected to the law anymore? No. Let me let me illustrate it to you this way with a, a silly illustration. Who are these two people? Charlie Brown's going to make an appearance later on, uh, but right now this is Linus, and this is Pepper and Patty. Okay, from the Penis cartoons, right? And they're going to play a role in a play for us. Uh, Peppermint Patty is going to play the role of us, and Linus is going to play the role of the law. And, you know, imagine, you know, we're kind of young, we're in school, and we, we look across the schoolyard and we see Mr. Law. And the thing about Mr. Law is the law is perfect. He, Paul's going to explain that later on in chapter 7, but make no mistake, there's nothing wrong with the law. In many ways, the law is is showing us the character of God. And when it says that for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, because what we've done is that we've missed the the character of God, the very nature of God. And and what the law was was kind of showing us what God's like. You know, I, I think of it this way that that you know the day that man ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, man wanted to be like God. And he thought he could do it through his knowing what's good and knowing what's evil. And so what God did essentially, he says, he gave him the law. He says, okay, you want to be like me? Here it is. Here I am. Gives him the Ten Commandments. That became now the target that they're aiming for. Because sin is anything that's missing the target. And the target is to be like God. So if you think about it, 
the law is showing us the character of God. It's just showing it to us in the negative. Right? I mean, if you look at it, don't murder, don't steal, uh, don't lie, and so forth. All those are the negatives. The positive is love. And that's what Hans was getting at earlier, that, that the very character and very nature of, of the law is saying to love, to love God and love others as you love yourself. Within these two commandments, the whole law is summarized because that's the nature and character of God. He's not a murderer. He's not a thief. He's not a liar or anything. So the law is holy. The law is perfect. The law is good. The law is showing us the character of God. And so we look at the law and we think, wow, he's, he's so dreamy. He's so perfect. If I could be with him, then my life would be perfect. My life would be good. And so we kind of cross the courtyard and we, we kind of introduce ourselves to Mr. Law. And before long, we're now married to Mr. Law. And we're thinking, this is great. I'm with Mr. Law. I am now with him. It's perfect. Everything's going to be good from here on in. And we're all excited about starting a new life here. And But what do you notice in Mr. Law's hand. What do you notice there? It's got some papers. What do you suppose is written on those papers? The law. Right? All 613 commands of those. Right? That you find not just the Ten Commandments and everything else. And and so we have this, this law here that's all written on the on the scroll. But what do you notice in our hands? I think this becomes our to-do list. You know, Mr. Law, who we love, he's got to go to work. And so he goes off to work and he gives us a list of 10 things to do. Now, we love Mr. Law. We want to show Mr. Law how much we love him. So we're dedicated, we're determined to do what's on our to-do list. And so we work really hard and we get 9 of the 10 things done on the list. Now, I don't know about you, but when I got 90% in school, I was pretty happy with myself. I was pretty pleased. Well, we get nine out of ten things done. We're feeling pretty good about ourselves. And Mr. Law comes home and what does he say? Yeah. Why are you such a failure? And they go, well, well, I got nine of them done. He goes, I know, that's my point. You failed. See, what does the law demand? Perfection. It's, it's not being graded on a curve. It's pass-fail. You either do it all or you did nothing. And so we're not measuring up. And he takes a look and says, yeah, there's 10 things on this. What happened? Well, I did my best. Well, apparently that's not enough. And so he starts to kind of look down upon us and kind of, you know, beat us up a little bit, you know, not physically, but but just kind of making us feel guilty and condemned and so forth. And, And so we're feeling really bad. And we think, well, let me try again. Let me do better. And so we begin to prepare. We start reading books on time management and we go to conferences and, and we get other people to get their advice and their counsel and have them pray for us. And, and we, we eat right and we exercise. We have lots of energy and we, we're going to try and stay up late but sleep really good and get up early and so give us more time to maximize everything. And, and we're doing everything we can. And well, the next day now, Mr. Law gives us a list of a 100 things to do. And we now begin to employ everything we've learned. We get 99 of the 100 things done. Mr. Law comes home. What does he say? You are such a failure. 
Why can't you do anything right? Because the law is demanding perfection. The problem is, how much can he help you? Nothing. He's just words on a paper. Right? That's all he is. But yet he's demanding that perfection. He's demanding you and I to do it all and to do it just as well as he can. But we never can. And so this marriage ends up to be pretty miserable. Right? Because all he's doing is he's reminding us what kind of a failure you are. What kind of a, uh, how many mistakes you make. And you didn't do this right. You didn't do that right. And he's, he, we, he just hear his criticism over and over and over again. And so, you know, she begins to pray and say, Lord, it'd be really nice if you took my husband home. You know, and he's, uh, he's kind of a pain in the butt. And, uh, he's not a nice man to live with. So could you do something about him? And, and it's an interesting prayer, but the problem is, he might be old, Mr. Law. I mean, at the very least, he's 3,500 years old, going back to Moses. But he's in really good shape. He's in really good health. Remember what Jesus said about the law? That not a single jot nor tittle, not a not a apostrophe, not a comma, not a crossing of the T of the law will pass in this age or in the one to come. And just so we're clear, we're in the age of the one to come. Meaning, he's old, but he's not going anywhere. But more than that, the problem really isn't Mr. Law. Who's the problem? We are. See, Mr. Law is perfect, holy and good, and we're anything but. Really, this is the original odd couple in that sense. And so he's not going anywhere and we're kind of stuck. And, and so now our prayers kind of change to be something like, Lord, you know, you can't take my husband home, so you take me home. I'm so sick and tired of this life, of failing, of not measuring up, of, of blowing it. And I don't care if you kill me or if you rapture me or you just take me home in a chariot like you did Elijah. Just get me out of here. Because I'm so tired of living this life. Have you been there yet? Have you experienced that frustration of failure, try again, fail again? Try harder, fail, over, repeat, repeat, repeat. It's exhausting and it's miserable. And the problem is, Jesus can't do anything at this point. Because if Jesus came in and He swept us away from Mr. Law, what would He be committing? Adultery. Because how long are we joined to Mr. Law? As long as we live. Right? So God's got to come up with another plan. And that's what verse 4 was. Therefore, my brethren, you were made to die to law. Remember that the only way to break up this relationship is to have a death. And the problem's not the law. He's not going anywhere. So that means who needs to die? We do. So we were crucified with Christ. That's what it says here. You were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. That when Christ was crucified on that cross, so are you, so are you and I. So not only were we set free from ourselves, we were also set free from sin as we saw last night, but now, because of our death on the cross, we were set free from Mr. Law. Well, why? Now that we are crucified, now that we could be joined to another to Jesus who was raised from the dead that we might bear fruit for God. And so what ends up happening now is there's a new relationship. Now just so we're clear, my concept of God is not Charlie Brown. 
okay? I don't have a God that just can't kick a football for the life of Him, okay? That's not my concept of God. He's just playing the role of Jesus here, right? But now we're in a whole new relationship with Jesus. Well, what do you notice different about this relationship than the one before? They actually seem to love each other, right? They actually seem to be satisfied with one another. What else do you know is different? No law, yeah. No more lists. And here's the, here's the reason why. When you've got Jesus, you don't need the list anymore. I mean, that's, that's shocking to people, but that's the reality of it. You don't need it. Um, uh, think of it this way. Suppose, suppose uh, Martha Stewart shows up. And she's got a, a recipe, or you know, Martha Stewart known for some kind of famous dessert. I don't know, pick one, apple pie or something like that. And you love Martha Stewart's apple pie. And you want to make it. Well, you got two choices now. You could get her to write out the recipe, and then you try to follow the recipe step by step. Or you can invite her into the kitchen and have her cook it with you, or bake it with you, where she's there, walking with you step by step, telling you what to do and then doing it with you. Which would be better? You doing it on your own or her right there? Her right there. Well, in essence, that's what we have with Jesus. He doesn't give you a list and say, now go to it. Do your best. Let me know how it goes. He says, let me come with you. Let me walk with you. And I will tell you step by step, turn by turn directions. Because that's how I want to do it. I want to do it with you. I want you to walk with me and to trust me in the moment. So we don't need the list because we've got Jesus. Something far better. What else do you know is different about this picture? No paper, so no lists, yeah? What else? They're dressed nice, yeah. They they kind of look fancy, don't they? Right? They're smiling. They kind of look each other, like each other, right? Yeah. And you kind of you notice that in, in married couples that you know the longer they stay together, the more they start looking like each other. It's a scary thought for my wife, but <laughs> but uh, you know that's what kind of happens with you and I. You know, the 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 happier we are, the longer we are with Jesus, the more we begin to look like Jesus, because it's Jesus living in us, right? But they're different people, yeah. Because this was who? Peppermint Patty. Now, who do I got here? Now, I got Lucy. Now, uh, that's not a mistake. Because, if remember what it says, that the law has jurisdiction over someone as long as he lives? Well, if, if God brings back Peppermint Patty, then who's Peppermint Patty still married to? Still married to the law. So, God couldn't bring back Peppermint Patty. If God brought back your old man, who would your old man still be married to? The law. So God didn't bring back the old man. Instead, He brought together a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, right? The old is past, the old is gone, never coming back, dead and buried. Now you and I are someone new. You're altogether different. You used to be a peppermint patty, now you're a Lucy. And this Lucy is so much better. And because you're a Lucy, because you're new and you're clean and you're pure, you're now married to Jesus. 
Now, notice this. What did the law demand of you and I? Perfection. What does Jesus demand of you and I now? What standard, though? I mean, the law's demanding, you know, essentially the law demanded love. It was just the standard of the law was perfection. So what's the standard that Jesus expects of you and I now? What standard of belief? Perfection. Yeah. See, sometimes, well, just do your best. That's okay. They're there. It's all right. No, he, he expects perfection. Remember what he said in Matthew 5, 48? Therefore, be perfect. And then let's make sure we know what perfect means. As perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. So it's not just any kind of perfection. No, no. you got to be as perfect as God is perfect. Well, isn't that exciting? You know, And we just jumped out of the pot into the fire? Well, here, here's the thing. First off, God can't lower His standard. If He lowers His standard, He's no longer holy and perfect. He's got to maintain that high standard. But here's the difference. Whereas the law can't do a single thing to help you. Because all the law is just words on a page. you got to do it. It's all up to you to pull it off. Jesus does far more. He enables us to pull it off. And, and what He does is rather than you trying to achieve perfection, He gives us that gift of perfection, almost like a wedding gift. And so His standard's up here and we're down here. What He does is He raises us up. Think about the verse we looked at on Thursday night in Hebrews 10 verse 14. By one offering, for all time. How long is all time? All time. right? It's forever. So by that one single offering, for all time, He has perfected those who are sanctified. He made us perfect. It's what we saw in Romans 5.17 about the gift, the abundance of the gift of righteousness. And so He, through His gift, gives us that level of perfection, that standard, that we can never do on our own. And you know what that means? It means you already are perfect. Just as you are. You're already accepted. Just as you are. It means you're already okay. No longer do I have to strive to become something. God's already made me holy. He's already made me perfect. And I'm joined to Him. We're now one. And because of that, now I get to bear fruit for God. Something I never could do before. Isn't that interesting? Even if you follow the law letter by letter, I mean right to the T, you wouldn't bear any fruit for God. Because who's doing all that work? You are. And the only one that can bear fruit for God, the only one that can glorify God, is who? Jesus. Remember what he says in John 15, 5? Apart from me, you can do very little. Yeah, you can't do anything. You can't do anything of value. Anything of worth. You can do a lot. I mean, I think that's what the Tower of Babel was an illustration of. Man, in his own strength, he can do a lot of things. But add it all up, and how much is it worth? Absolutely nothing. It's of no value at all. 
And so what he's done is he's joined us to Christ, made us one with Christ. Now he can live his life through us and therefore we're now bearing fruit. Are we producing fruit? No. It's not your job to produce fruit. It's simply our job to bear it. Whose job is it to produce it? It's God. Think about the fruit of the Christian. Is that what it's called? It's the fruit of the Spirit. And it's capital S, which means it's the Holy Spirit. He's the one producing the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, and so forth. We just get to bear it. But here's our problem. We're all excited and we love Jesus and we wish that He could know how much we love Him. And so we say, we come to the Lord, how can I show you my love? How can I prove my love to you? And, and I think He says at the beginning, He says, you know what? I want you to, to know my love for you. I want you to start with knowing my voice. To know how much I care about you. And, and it's sort of like that initial honeymoon period that he was trying to establish because he wants to strengthen the bond of that. It's interesting, in, in Deuteronomy, they, they actually legislate a honeymoon. I don't know if you knew this or not. But the honeymoon was actually in the law. And you didn't take one week or two weeks. You got one year. You didn't leave the home for one year. Well, the reason was is because in that year, the two of you really got to know one another and got to build a strong bond. And so at the beginning, he's thinking, just let's develop this. The serving will come, and the serving's important, but this relationship trumps all that. So let's develop that. The problem is, that's, that's kind of mystical almost. I mean, how do I really know how I'm doing? And I, I don't have the checklist anymore. You know, the law was great, because I didn't kill anyone today. Check. You know, haven't lied, check. Didn't steal, check. You know, I haven't done this, that's wonderful. No golden calves on my on my, my mantle, check. So I knew where I stood. But you take that away and now I no longer have that checklist to say, how am I doing? And so I start to get worried. And then I think, well, how do I, how do I show him? And so who do I go to to find out how to love Jesus? I go to the law, right? And I say, well, law, will you show me the things I need to do so I can please Jesus? But here's the problem. What does the law do? What does the law increase? Sin. So I go back to the law, which just increases sin. So I blow it. So I feel really bad. So I go running back to Jesus for forgiveness. I'm sorry. I won't do it again. I promise. To show you how serious I am, I've instituted some new rules in my life. And what do those rules cause then? More sin. So I go running back to Jesus, really sorry this time. And to really show Him how serious I am, I add some more rules in my life with some people to keep me accountable to those rules. What ends up happening? More sin, I go running back to Jesus. What am I doing every time I run back to the law? What am I committing? Adultery. Spiritual adultery. See, here's the reality of it. The Christian's relationship with the law ended at salvation. It's over. And, and just so we're clear, because what's happened, I think, is 
is is theologians they've reduced the law into nice three categories. You know, there's the the ceremonial law, which is all the sacrifices that happens. There was the civil law in terms of you know how they they treated one another, and then there was the the Ten Commandments, the moral law. And we've divided the law into those nice three boxes. And when we say, well, we're not under law, we're under grace, meaning, well, we're not under the ceremonial law. That's why we don't have to worry about, um, you know, the sacrifices anymore. We don't do that anymore. And we're not under the civil law, so you don't have to worry about what clothes you wear, and you're allowed to eat shellfish now, and and bacon, and, and pork, and, you know, more bacon. All that's good, right? So we're not under those laws. But the Ten Commandments, well, we're still under that. Because that's, that's the Big Ten. That's, that's important. And so we're still under that. The problem is, God didn't divide up the law. For God, the law was the whole thing. And either you're under part or you're under... Either under, under none or you're under all of it. There's no in-between. And, and what we try to do is we try to keep part of the law... But the reality is, you and I, our relationship with the law ended at salvation. Because we got someone far better. Jesus. And Paul's going to make that case now. In fact, he's going to show us why it's so important that is the case. And he's going to prove that using one of the Ten Commandments. Which I find really interesting. So, let's keep going then. So therefore, my brethren, you also are made to die to law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who is raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Any questions at this point so far? Alright, verse 5. He's going to continue explaining, For while we're in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by what? The law. So he, he verse 5, he's kind of going back to before we were saved. That's what it means by while we were in the flesh. It's a past tense thing. So there was a time, we're not anymore, but when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions were aroused by the law. See, what the law does is it stirs up sin. It entices it. There's a, there's a great story that Chuck Swindoll likes to tell about a, a hotel that was right on the beach in Florida. And they were worried that, because it was, I mean, literally right on the beach, they were worried that people would go fishing from their balcony. And, you know, because fishermen are crazy, so they'll do that sort of thing, right? So they were worried because, you know, when they get up high enough into like, the, you know, the seventh, eighth floor, because it was a high-rise hotel, that if you didn't cast off properly and you'd need a really heavy lure, that instead of it landing in the water, it would swing and do what? It would shatter the window, right? So they put up a sign that says, no fishing from your balcony. Well, guess what? A week wouldn't go by without them having to replace one of the, the, the windows on the first or second floors. Because fishermen were going, yeah, that, yeah, let's do that. So every week, every, you know, someone's fit, casting off and, and they're failing. Smash the window. Then they, you know, throw the rod or hide the rod. I don't know what they did, but, you know, they were trying to cover the tracks. Well, what was the answer? They just took down the signs. The moment they took down the signs, they didn't have to replace the windows anymore. Because what was the sign doing? Arousing the sinful passions. Reminded them of the possibilities. Yeah. I mean, think of it this way. You're in a restaurant. The waitress comes up. Hot plate. Do not touch. 
<laughs> yeah, it's hot. Right? The moment you say, tell someone not to do something, they want to do it. I have, I have a couple that I'm counseling and, and she's, you know, she's on him to do this and do that. And every time she's, she's on him, you know what he says? Well, just because you're telling me to do it, I'm not going to do it. Well, what's happening? The law is arousing that rebellion. And you know what? That's its role. That's the purpose of the law. It wasn't meant to control sin. It was going to be meant to expose it. We'll see that later on. But this, the law was arousing the sin, which is at work in the members of our body. And all it was doing was bearing fruit for death. More sin. More discouragement. More despair. But now, transition. This was verse 5 was an unbeliever. But now, verse 6 is the believer. Now that we've been released from the law. And that word released is the same word that we saw in verse Romans 6.6 6, about rendered powerless. That the law's power over you and I is now powerless. The law has been rendered powerless to you and I. Why? Because we died to that which once we were bound. We've died to the law. So that, here's the reason that we serve. That's interesting. See, a lot of people think, well, you take the law away, then there's no motivation to serve. That the rules are there to make sure people do serve. Because you take that away, then people don't have the motivation anymore. Well, no, we still serve. But now, in the newness of the Spirit, and not in the oldness of the letter. So we don't follow the rules anymore. Who do we follow? Jesus. We're in the kitchen with Martha Stewart. I mean, imagine this. you got Martha Stewart right there. Are you going to go back to her cookbooks? Alright, how, how does she... What does she mean by that? What do I do here? What do I do there? Is this looking right? Is this beat up enough? I wonder. Whole time she's standing right there. What would you do? Martha, how are we doing? Martha, I, you know, I, I don't know what I'm doing here. Can you, can you help me? And maybe she grabs your hand and shows you how to whisk. Shows you how to break an egg. Maybe shows you how to turn on an oven, guys. I'm not sure. But she's right there. You know, in the room. And that's what we got with Jesus. So we don't serve now by following the law. We trust Christ to live in us. A way better way to go. Amen? But here's the thing. We love the law. We love the law. Here, this diagram is in your notes somewhere. And uh, what we've got here... <coughs> is I want to make a list of the things by which we um, we evaluate ourselves. So I want you to think about um, some things, and maybe we'll just shut them out. Maybe we, you know, we can all participate here. What are some things that if you fail to do, you end up kicking yourself over? If Is there something in your life that, you know, if, if you just don't do it, you kind of get upset with it? For example, maybe you always have to be on time. You always have to show up, you know, not at the, when it starts. You have to be there 10 minutes early. And if you're not 10 minutes early, now you're late, right? So one would be, you have to be on time, right? What are some other things that you guys, you know, if you, if you don't do properly, you end up beating yourself up over? Miss an appointment. Miss an appointment, all right? So don't... Miss appointments. 
That's important because, you know, it's kind of rude, right? People feel bad and, and you know, they spent that time and, and you, you just forget and then you just kick yourself over, right? What's another one? Okay. Be organized. Hence the reason all the planners out there, right? And, and you know, we have hooks and the place for keys and the place for this and, and, you know, schedules and alarms on our phones saying, be here, do this, do that. Yeah. Don't lose your cool. Don't lose your cool. Yeah. What happens if you lose your cool? Yeah. And what happens then? You get angry, you get upset, you get frustrated, people get hurt. Yeah, so keep your cool, don't lose it. What else? Don't break a promise. Okay, keep your word. Good. What else? Don't fail at your job. That's that one's important. Yeah. Um, don't fail at work. I mean, think about it this way: you fail at work, what happens? Either you get fired, or the company goes out of business and you get fired, right? So you don't want to do that. What's some other ones? Okay, yeah. So keep others happy. Yeah. I mean, we we hate it when people are upset with us, right? Or they're or they're disappointed with us. That kind of goes with the you know, don't miss your appointments because you don't want them to be angry with you. What's a couple of other ones? Don't lie. Don't lie. Yeah. That's, that's kind of like keep others happy. Yeah, don't disappoint them. Or don't be a disappointment. Right? That's, that's kind of, you know, do, don't fail at work. What's one more? Okay, look good. Yeah. Okay. So what we have here are different criteria, different things that are really important to to a various number of you people that we're trying to do. These are kind of the standards by which we're trying to live up to. And we know that it's a standard because if I don't keep it, if I don't do it, I'm kicking myself over it. I'm beating myself up over it. Right? So now what I want to do is I want us to think about how well we're doing on these things. So on a scale of, of 0 to 10, so for example, how well are we at being on time? Right? Well, most of you guys are here early, so we'll give you, you know, a nice 9 out of 10. Right? So that's good. Um, how are you doing at not missing appointments? Put you on the spot here. On a scale of 0 to 10, 0, you're a total failure. 10, you're perfect. You're always there. How well are you doing? I'm putting you on the spot. Like a number? Yeah. Seven. Seven. Okay. Be organized. How well are you being organized? 
Four. Oh dear. Okay. All right. Don't lose your cool. How are you doing at not losing your cool? Three? All right, I'm going to stand on this side of the room now. Keeping your word, keeping your promise. Who said that one? You're all scared now. <laughs> Who said keep your word? I don't remember that one. No one wants to admit it. They're not keeping the word now. We're uh, all right. We'll give you a two. Um, don't fail at work. How you doing, Andre? At work. <laughs> How you doing? What do you think? Seven. All right. We'll talk later. All right. Keep others happy. How you doing at keeping others happy? Seven. Don't lie. Don't lie. Who said don't lie? And don't lie. All right. How you doing at not lying? Five. Oh dear. Is that true? I don't know anymore, right? If you're five, I don't know if that's a lie or not. All right, and look good. What do you guys think? Is he looking good? All right, we'll give you a ten. Okay. What we've got here in in the green is essentially the degree to which you have been successful. It's the, the green is the degree to which you measured up. The degree to which you were able to achieve your standard. The, the problem is though, the red here That's the degree to which you failed. And and here here's what we end up doing. So for example, let's let's pick on the lie one. We're five out of ten. And so we say, Well, Lord, you know, five out of ten, that's not good. I need to be more honest. I need to tell the truth more. And so, Lord, please forgive me for my failures, and I will try better. Tomorrow, to try to move my five up to a six or a seven and, and so forth, to be more honest. And my goal is to improve the, the green score and reduce my red score to the point where I look as good as Abe. And that's kind of my thinking. But in essence, what we've done is we reduce Christianity to a souped up form of Judaism. <coughs> to an improved, so, so to speak, or so we think at least, uh, but just another form of Judaism. When you think about Judaism, they had the Ten Commandments. They had 613 commandments about what to do, what not to do, what to wear, what not to wear, where to go, when to go, and so forth. And they had all these commands. And the thinking was, you know, do your best to measure up to all these commands. And when you don't, when you failed in some of these commands, when you weren't organized, or, or when you missed an appointment and so forth, what would you do? He'd offer a sacrifice. 
right? Whether it be a lamb or a goat or a pigeon or whatever, a bull or so forth, you offer your sacrifice, receive forgiveness, and then what? Try harder. Well, that's what we've done in Christianity, haven't it? We try our best. We fail. We ask for forgiveness. We offer our sacrifice, which happens to be Jesus. And then we try again, but try harder next time. And all we're doing is we're still living out of the old covenant. We're still living out of a law-based system of trying to measure up. You see, the law is essentially a system of blessings and curses. That's what the law is. The law says, if you do this successfully, you'll be blessed. If you fail, you'll be cursed. A great illustration of this is Deuteronomy 28. If you look at it, in Deuteronomy 28, the first 14 verses are all blessings. If you measure up, if you do all that I say, he says, then you, you know, you'll be blessed in the city, you'll be blessed in the country, you'll be blessed at home, you'll be blessed at work, you'll be the head, not the tail. On and on and on it goes for 14 verses, you'll be blessed. But, he says, if you fail to do all that I command you, meaning if you fail at one place, one point in time in your life, you'll be cursed. And then he goes and gets 54 verses of curses. Isn't that exciting? Sounds like a raw deal, right? 14 verses of blessings, 54 verses of curses. Bless, curse shall be in your home, curse shall be in the city, curse shall be in the country, curse shall be your, your, your crops, curse shall be your, your kids, your family, you'll be the tail, not the head. On and on and on it goes. And that's the law. Measure up, blessed, fail, cursed. And in between, offer the sacrifice to make up the difference. But that's not what Christianity is. Christianity has removed you out of that system. You're no longer under a system of blessing and curses. You're no longer cursed if you sin or blessed if you do well. Now, there's still consequences. We saw that last night. But it isn't a blessing and cursing system. It isn't something where we're trying to achieve this. But what I see is a lot of Christians putting themselves under this law system. And yeah, it doesn't look like the Ten Commandments. Because, I mean, we have all these different commands. But there's all kinds of ones that we put ourselves in. So these are mostly uh, uh, laws that we put on ourselves. Absolutely. But there are also other people who put laws on us. Sure. Yeah. Which is called legalism. Well, both are called legalism. Right? I mean, this is these are the laws that we might put on ourselves. It might be laws that others have put on us. Regardless, the moment I accept it, I am now placing myself under law, and it's legalism. And so here's what happens. You know, when you reach that 10, you look good. Well, then, then the standard changes, right? Now, 10 becomes the new 7. And now more is expected of you. So you got to look better next time I see you. Right? Or... Um, you're organized, right? Well, imagine you got organized up and you finally got to an 8 out of 10, but now how much is enough? More. So 10 becomes the new 6. So instead of getting 8 out of 10, now you're back at 4 and you got to try harder. 
Well, eventually, you know, you hit that point, you know, keeping your word and so forth, where you're just, you know, you're failing. And you might even go negative. And at that point, you just kind of give up. What's the point? I'm never going to be able to do it. I'm never going to be good enough. And so why even bother? Why even try? And what you're experiencing is that that fruit unto death. It's the condemnation of the law coming after us, weighing us down, beating us up. But the reality is we've been set free from this whole system. We're no longer under it, under it anymore. We no longer live with this in mind. Yeah, at the same time you have talked about like, we're not, God didn't do away with the law. No, right? He didn't do away with the law, but he, it, just, it no longer has the role for you and I. Here's a, here's a great verse. Uh, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. I, I love, this is such a powerful passage. <clears throat> 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 5. Here Paul, writing Timothy, he says, The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So our goal here isn't just to give you more knowledge and more insight into the book of Romans. <coughs> Sorry, in verse 5. 1 Timothy 1, verse 5. If, if you walk out of here and all that you, you have is more information, then we've missed the point. Yeah, we want to give you information, but that information isn't just for the sake of information. Our goal is for you to walk out of here so that you'll love. You'll love God. You'll love yourself. You'll love other people. And you'll do it from a pure heart. Because that's what God's done, right? He's given us a new heart. New desires. Our desires to love isn't, I'll love you if you love me. It's not to get your love. It's not to manipulate your love through loving you. It's just to love you for the sake of loving you. That's the pure heart, pure desires. And a good conscience. That's the new spirit that God's given us. So we have a new, holy, good, pure spirit. And with a sincere faith, trusting and depending upon Jesus Christ to live His life through us. That's our goal. But, watch in verse 7, verse 6, sorry, for some men straying from these things, straying from this, this sense of trusting in Jesus to live through us, to love other people, they've turned aside the fruitless discussion. What's a fruitless discussion? It's pointless. It's not going to go anywhere, right? It, and are there any fruitless discussions in the church today? Denominations are based, a lot of them are based on fruitless discussions, right? Look what he's talking about for fruitless discussion though. Verse 7, wanting to be teachers of the law. The, these people, they've strayed away from the heart of the gospel and what are they focusing on? The law. You need to do this, you need to do that, you need to stop this, you need to stop that, you need to come to church, you need to give, you need to, uh, you need to work in the nursery, you need to come out and pray, you need to read your Bible, you need to, to go here, you need to wear this, you can't watch that, you can't see this, you can't go here, you got to go there, you got to go to missions, you got you to do this. All sorts of things. And they're so focused on making sure you have the right behavior, that they're wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they don't understand either what they're saying or the matters which would make confident assertions. 
They're thinking they're helping everybody by, by saying, you need to do this more. And yet, they're giving them the law. And what will the law do? Bring death. Bring, death. Bring more sin. More rebellion. And so they're, they're making all these confident assertions and they have no idea what they're talking about. Because they don't understand the role of the law. So what's the role of the law? Uh, verse 8. But we know the law is good. Make no mistake. Don't hear me say the law is bad. I love the law. I think we need to use the law. We don't use the law enough, in my opinion. But here's the thing. When it, Any kind of uh, performance-based rules that I think specifically here, he you know in his writing in these group of people, it would have been the, the law of Moses. But I think you know we have a moral law that that is just implied in our culture about what's correct and what's not correct, and that too has this idea of if you're not doing it, there's something wrong. If you are doing it, then you're okay. That's essentially what the law is trying to say. And so the law, and essentially the, the moral law, the, the law, the character of God, is good if one uses it lawfully. If one uses it properly. So we need to use the law, we just need to use it properly. So how does one use the law properly? Verse 9, realizing the fact. What's a fact? It's a true statement. A true statement. There's no doubt. Realizing the fact, the law is not made for a righteous person. That's interesting. It's not made for a righteous person. But for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and Montreal Canadian fans and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Right? My Bible might be a little different than your. I, I added some things in there. You might you might have seen that. Um, so who's the law for? Who's it not for? The righteous person. Who's righteous? Everybody who's in Christ. Every Christian. What about the Christian who still drinks too much, gets drunk a lot? Is he righteous? What about the Christian who has a pornography problem? What about the Christian who gossips too much? We don't have any of that in the church, right? What are they still? They're still righteous. Is the law for them? No. No. Who is it for? It's for the non-Christian. Why? To show them the need to become a Christian. Let's, let's think of it this way. Go back to our Martha Studio illustration. Suppose I walk in the kitchen and I think, I can cook. I can cook like Martha Stewart. I, in fact, I can cook as good, if not better, than Martha Stewart. Okay, let's find out. Here's her recipe. Go to it. You think you're so great, then make some fancy, crazy dish that's perfect for the holidays. I don't even know what it would be. <laughs> but, you know, some filet mignon de brune, or I don't know what it is, right? But <laughs> but something fancy, right? That would take more than 10 minutes in a microwave in a box, right? So something big. And so I, I, I can do this. I, I can pull this off. So I get this recipe. And you know what? I won't be able to pull it off. 
What is that recipe exposing to me? That I can't do it. That I am a lousy cook. Right? That's the whole point of the recipe. But now that I've failed, now that I can't cook, I still got to eat. So guess who walks through the door now? Martha Stewart. So I lay aside my recipe and now I cook with Martha. And she produces some fabulous meal that tastes way better than anything I could have produced. Just a practical question. So I'm at work. Don't fail at work is one of the laws that we don't uh, want to be under. But I'm failing at work. I'm retired, so I don't have to worry about it anymore. (laughs) But Andre does, though, because she works here. So that's important still. Mm -hmm. You know, and my boss is down at me. So Mm -hmm. how do I deal with that? Mm-hmm. Here's the thing. We could add some other rules. I mean, let's add, for example, you know, n- none of you guys, other than, you know, poor Diana, she's the only one that seems to be Christian here. You guys just don't seem to care about God. So I'm going to add here, uh, don't commit adultery. Right? That's one of the Ten Commandments. Right? That's important. Now, if I'm not under law, does that mean I'm going to commit adultery? No. If I don't commit adultery, does that mean I'm following the law? No. See, I don't murder. I don't steal. I don't cheat. I don't commit adultery. And here's why. Not because I have a list of rules telling me not to do it, but because Christ in me doesn't want to do it. So, do I still want to work hard? Yeah. Absolutely. Because Christ in me wants to work hard. Do I want to be organized? Well, yeah. God's organized. Look at creation. Creation's of order. I I don't want to lose my cool because that's not Jesus. So I want to do all these things. Here's the difference. When I fail, not if I fail, when I fail, I don't have to beat myself up anymore because my value, my worth is no longer determined by how successful I am here. Because that's what essentially we do. If we begin to evaluate ourselves, we say, well, how good am I doing? Well, we kind of take an average of our scores and we think, well, I'm somewhere along here. You know, a six and a half out of ten overall. So I got some room for improvement. And you know, if I could just keep my word, for goodness sakes, that would really bump up my score quite a bit. And then I could begin to feel better about myself. When the reality is, when I fail, what am I still? I'm loved and accepted. I'm a perfect 10. What can I do to change that? Nothing. Does that mean I'm going to go and live some reckless lifestyle? No. I mean, I'm free to commit adultery. I really am. I'm also free to live the consequences of committing adultery. Losing my wife, losing my family, and being miserable for the rest of my life. That's the consequence. But you know what I'm still? Still loved, still accepted, still as righteous after I committed adultery as I was before. So what's preventing me from committing adultery? We. Remember Romans 6 too? We who have died to sin no longer have to live in. I actually don't want to do it. I really don't. It's not my new nature. It's not my desire. My desire... is to love, to love my wife, to love my kids, 
to live an upright life. That's my desire. I don't need an external code to tell me that. It comes from within. And that's the glory of grace. So in Titus 2, 11 and 12, it says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. It's not the law that teaches me how to live righteously. It goes on in verse 12, it says, And it's the grace of God that teaches me how to live righteously and godly and upright and proper. That's Titus 2, 11 and 12. So I've been set free from this system and no longer do I have to become something. I already am. And here's what's so great about it. Now I can rest. Because I don't have to, to prove myself. I don't have to earn your love. I already am loved. Does that make sense? The application of this is that now I also get to accept other people. Right? Because not only does God love me and make me a perfect 10, but then I get to love myself because I'm a perfect 10. And if I don't love myself, then what I'm really saying is, God, you didn't do enough. And I have higher standards than you, God. But I can now love myself. I am okay. Just as I am. On my worst day, in my worst moment, in my worst sin, I'm okay. I'm loved. And because I'm loved, I can now love you. Remember what Jesus says? The two greatest commands. Love God with all your heart, body, soul, and being. And love others. How? As you love yourself. If you don't love yourself... If you don't accept yourself unconditionally, how are you going to treat other people? You're going to put them under law as well. It may look a lot like the laws that you're under. Or it may look slightly different. But if you haven't accepted yourself the way God's accepted you, there's no way you'll be able to accept other people that way. So the ap- it starts with God loves me. The application is I love myself so I can love you. That's what God's done. And when we know, when we can rest in that knowledge, that's what it is. It's rest. Because I don't need to prove myself anymore. All right, why don't we take a break here?